this morning. It is with the Lord's gracious help that we hope to examine verses 12 to 14, verses 12 to 14, which we will read once again after a short word of prayer. Let us call upon the Lord. Our merciful Lord and God, we give thee thanks for thy word. We thank thee, Lord, for speaking to us from the words of Scripture. Lord, that we have this speaking voice in black and white, established and sure and pure. And we thank thee, Lord, that we may rely upon the Word of God in all matters and even in what we are to be taught this morning. We pray, Lord, that thou would be pleased to open our hearts to receive the Word that thou would give us that help, that grace, Lord, that anointing that we've just read of, that would increase it and help us to hear the word and to believe the word, to be humbled before the word, to receive it and to apply it. We do pray that the Spirit of God will enable us to receive the word, that we would not reject it, that we would not be found as we've written as we've seen written in this chapter, Lord, found to be liars and false converts, but we may know the true work of the Spirit. Humble us, Lord, and exalt thyself. And grant me that anointing that I need to preach thy word with power. Grant the Holy Ghost to the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So verses 12 to 14, as we're continuing, we finished at verse 11 uh, last time. And 12 to 14, it's own little section that we see. Verse 12, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning, I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Amen. There is, at the moment, something happening in America. No doubt you've, you've seen it in the, uh, in the newspapers, or online reports, in the social media, something that's called uh, the Asbury Revival. Students at a private Christian university, Asbury University, in Kentucky, uh, and there's even debate amongst our own ministers about the, the validity of it. Nobody's saying that it is all of God, or it's not, or that it is all not of God. What we see that there is much emotion involved, and so some will immediately say, "Well, see, this is a work of the Spirit," and others would say, "Well, no, it's all emotion. There's nothing of the Spirit." Others point out that even openly homosexual students are involved and and playing in the worship teams, and therefore it could not be blessed by God but we know that God converts sodomites also. Others point out that the preaching is not the biblical gospel and therefore could not be used of God. 
And again, others point out that local Roman Catholics and even charismatics are are attending and, and, and speaking of spiritual experiences and being very being made very emotional by them. Now, the worship itself is fairly tame, certainly not of our conservative standards, but it is in and of itself very tame. It's not filled with the excesses of, of many churches. The Bible itself is preached from, to some limited degree, as I understand. And yes, there are no wild, charismatic exhibitions. You see the raising of hands, that's about the closest you seem to get to charismatic excess. So how are we to judge this? We have not been there. We have not attended. We may have seen some things online. But the question is, and the most important question, I would say, is the ministry of the Word, is it biblical? And how do we adjudge this? Well, Isaiah is our help in this, Isaiah 8 and verse 20. He says, the Spirit of God says through Isaiah and says to us this morning, to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And so you'd have to listen uh, to the preaching to understand, are they speaking what the word of God speaks? Is it a biblical word? I've heard opposing reports. I haven't spent time to listen to sermons uh, and the many sermons that have been preached there uh, in this last week. But I've heard reports, positive and not so positive. But we have the ministry of the Word, however solid that is. But what about the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the Word? Is the Spirit evident? Is His ministry evident in Asbury? Is there deep conviction of sin that is leading to life-altering conversions? It's too soon to know. Our greatest commentators on, on revival, like Jonathan Edwards, would say also it is too soon to know. Jonathan Edwards from the 1700s lived and labored during a time of great revival in New England. And he essentially said it wasn't by the emotional re response to the word, it wasn't by the euphoria and the passion that existed for a few weeks, and especially once this, 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 this whole season has ended. He says, is there abiding fruit? And therefore, it is now too soon to know. And we can, and, and I do, have many questions and doubts about uh, this revival. However, this must rem be remembered. That God is sovereign over the many great imperfections of preacher and hearer alike. And if the Lord waited until a congregation could dot every biblical I and cross every biblical T, we would be waiting a long time for any reviving work. That's no excuse to be unbiblical, of course. To put aside the Word of God and say, what do I want to do in worship? What do I want to do? What pleases me? No, no, no. What pleases Him? Whatever He says and He demands and He wants, we give Him because that's true worship. 
the true worship of him. Not they haven't sung my favorite hymn and therefore I don't like this worship. Worship's not about you. Now that would be absolutely a novel thought for most people in the evangelical world. Evangelical being used very loosely. Revival is a work of grace. It is a gracious and sovereign work of God who can work through the excesses or the imperfections. True revival is often preceded by a gracious preparatory work in the people. That the Lord sets his people having a a hunger and a thirst for revival in their own lives, in society, in, in other places, and that, and that desire sets them a-praying. They're humbled before God, and they pray to God, and they continue to pray, Lord, send us revival. We don't earn revival. There are no tricks to get God to do revival, as it were. If we do this and we tick all these boxes, then God's bound to give us revival. That's not taught in the Scriptures. However, we must humble ourselves and we must seek God until He gives revival. Our motto uh, text from last year speaks on this. 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14. We preached on a couple of times. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Heal their land. So again, this is not a, this is not a, a list of things that we can tick off and, and now Lord will send revival. No, he may heal the land in different ways. Let me turn those, those wicked Laws from the statute books that they would be removed as a healing of the land. A removal of of blasphemous and hypocritical politicians would be a healing of the land. But a sending of true revival itself, which would lead to true reformation, would be a glorious healing of the land. And yet, do we desire to see genuine revival in our own hearts, our own families, our own congregation, our own neighborhood, our own city, etc. Do we desire that? And if we do desire it, why aren't we faithfully at the weekly prayer meeting? Having been fed on the Word of God and then we pray together. The waiting on the Lord in prayer. Again, it's not a checkbox. If we do this, God will send revival. But he will heal our land. And God willing, he will send revival. So ultimately, as we know from the scriptures, we must judge an individual conversion and a revival itself from its fruit. May there be false fruits, may there be bad fruits, they, they may, no doubt there will be. And yet we look for true fruits. Is a sinner truly converted? Not if they had an emotional season. Is their fruit of conversion evident in their lives? 
Is there clear and lasting repentance visible in them? Is there a desire towards God and towards His Word? Do they start more and more desiring to know who Jesus is and to be students of the Word of God and want to know it because they want to meet the Lord, they want to know the Lord, they want to love the Lord? Is there a change in affections? Moved from sin to the Savior? Do they desire holiness? That is heartfelt obedience to the Word. Do we see fruit? And some of this is pointed out to us by the Apostle as we look at these three verses today. And you might think, well, I see no relationship. Well, there is. Because he speaks of essentially three stages of grace in a believer's life. It speaks of those three stages and uses the human age, human development as an example. He speaks of children, that is those who are entering into a state of grace. He also speaks of young men, those that are growing in grace. And fathers, those that are ripening in grace. And so as we continue then studying John's epistle, and we've seen there are many marks. Uh, We've read some of them as we've read chapter 2, but in in chapter 1 also, these many marks, these many indicators, challenges also, because as true Christians will hear these things and say, well, I'm not as strong in that, I don't see that in me that we're then exhorted, we're then encouraged, we're then even pricked to the conscience to seek more of this from the Lord. But also gospel hypocrites are prodded, awake, God willing, in many of these aspects that we see in John's first epistle. And so with the Lord's gracious help this morning, let us see something of the marks, the signs of growing in grace the marks of growing in grace, the fruits of a true conversion and the work of sanctification. The marks of growing in grace. Let us see firstly then the childlikeness of the Lord's people. The childlikeness of the Lord's people as we open up verse 12 together. Verse 12, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. He's not writing to one-year-old and two-year-old babes. He's not writing to toddlers in that way, although they would be included by God's grace. What's he saying? He's calling them little children. He's pointing out a couple of things here. Firstly, the trust of babes in Christ. The trust or the trusting of babes in Christ. Because here it would appear, although John um, and, and John writes in a, in, in a, in a, has a specific style of writing, and sometimes his, his style of writing it can be a little bit obscure. As John is one of the easiest of all the New Testament writers to read in the original Greek. His Greek is easy, his theology is deep. His theology is deep, and sometimes he says things in ways that seem to be quite difficult. It's, it's almost as difficult as Paul when he comes to these verses 12 to 14. 
And now he repeats things and he says things in a certain way that can make you scratch your head. Isn't he just repeating himself? He is not. See, our, our first instance when we think about him speaking to the children in Christ is saying, well, it's children, then fathers, then young men, and then children, and fathers, and young men. Well, it's obviously he's just splitting the congregation into, into three groups, and he is after verse 12. And we could go into the arguments that Calvin makes for that, but I don't want to bore you with that detail. But he's pointing to this important thing, the trust of babes in Christ. That's what really 12 is speaking to. I write unto you little children. That includes the fathers and the young men. I have to prove that from the first verse of chapter 2. The first verse of chapter 2, you might just flip back to it. My little children, these things write I unto you. And so John is referring to all his readers as little children. Even though now he uses human age to make a point. He calls them using a tender patriarchal tone. Because that word is very much in disrepute these days. A father that leads, guides, protects, provides, has affection for those that God has put under his care. That's a biblical patriarch. And so we see that John himself a mere disciple, a mere apostle, a mere elder, these things are said about him, or he says himself, is also a father of the faith. And he calls those to whom he writes little children. That's affection. That's affection. He sees that they need feeding. Like Christ, it's Christ-likeness of John. The Christ would see that they were as sheep without a shepherd and that the heart goes out towards them and moved. And so is John. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you. So there is affection there, but there's also knowledge because he knows that they are little children and they have much to learn. Much to learn, much to understand. But it is as little children that we are to enter into the kingdom of God in the first place. Therefore he is speaking to converts, or those that must come to Christ yet, more broadly in the church? Maybe, but I think very precisely speaking to those who have entered the kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus Christ says so. One example is in Mark 10 and verses 14 to 15, when there were parents bringing their children to the Lord Jesus Christ for a blessing, and the disciples started sending the children away. Oh, the the Lord Jesus Christ has got more important things than laying his hand on little children or praying for them. He's, he, he's the big important rabbi. Just leave them alone. But what does it say? But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. And said unto them, suffer the little children to come unto me. Suffering means allow it. Permit the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Now there's a an important command that goes out to every parent, of course. Do not stand in the way of your child in Christ, but bring them to the kingdom of God, to the very door, praying that God would bring them in. Verily I say unto you, the Lord continues, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. 
And so without wanting to open up that verse and have a sermon within a sermon, what does the Lord mean by this? Well, the Lord means that you must come trustingly. That's the whole essence of faith, and we'll open that up a little bit more in a second. That we're trusting, that we're teachable, that we're obedient, that we're loving. Because adults are often not like that. Adults are often cynical and judgmental and, and hard and rebellious. And the Lord says, you can't enter the kingdom of God like that. There's still too much to be repented of. No, you must humble yourself as a little child. Physically, a child is small. And so the Lord wants you to be small, to humble yourself before him. And that's the only way to enter in to that straight, narrow, and short gate. Because you must get on your knees to enter in. And so that says something about the childlikeness that is needed, the trust of babes in Christ. If the Lord says so, it is so, and I will do so. Very simple. No ifs and buts and questions and, well, what about this and what about that? That's the cynicism of the adult is to be removed and the trust, uh, the the trustingness, there's a new word, the trustingness of the child is to be there of a young child. Which points to the doctrine of faith. The doctrine of faith that we see in verse 12. I write unto you, little children, why? Because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. The doctrine of faith. Your sins are not forgiven you because you go to church. They're not forgiven you because your parents were Christians. They're not forgiven you because you've had a sacrament applied to you. Uh, They're forgiven you for Christ's sake. Because you believe on Christ. And therefore Christ can pay for your sins. The doctrine of faith. Because that's the only way that sinners will enter into the kingdom. It's the only way that sinners, who are the children of Satan, will ever become the children of God and little children, as John calls them, by faith. Calvin, when he writes on this specific verse, he says these things. He says, holiness of life ought indeed to be urged. The fear of God ought to be carefully enjoined. That means encouraged. Men ought to be sharply goaded to repentance, to the newness of life together with its fruits. But still, we ought ever to take heed, lest the doctrine of faith be smothered. Now, those from a more hyper-Calvinist background would recognize all of this. The doctrine of faith can be smothered by other things. He hasn't mentioned it, but it can be smothered by election. It can be smothered by predestination. It can be smothered by a whole list of things that you wouldn't find in the Bible, but are still taught. But Calvin says that all these other things, that he has mentioned anyway, are all important, ought to be enjoined, commanded, exhorted from the, from the pulpit. But still we ought ever to take heed, lest the doctrine of faith be smothered. That doctrine which teaches that Christ is the only author of salvation and of all blessings. On the contrary, such moderation ought to be presented 
that faith may ever retain its own primacy. Faith, trust, childlikeness. The Lord says so, it is so. No buts or ifs. That faith may ever retain its own primacy. This is the rule prescribed to us by John. Having faithfully spoken of good works, lest he should seem to give them more importance than he ought to have done, he carefully calls us back to contemplate the grace of Christ. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. You know, contemplating the undeserved grace of Christ that we find in the gospel it should make us humble, spiritual children and should keep us as humble, spiritual children. To add to what Calvin just wrote. So we have the, the trust of babes in Christ. We have the doctrine of faith. And we have thirdly, the knowledge of the Father. And the, we get the knowledge of the Father when he does speak to those that, he's, that are young in the faith in verse 13. in verse 13 I write unto you little children yeah at the end of verse 13 I write unto you little children because ye have known the father this is where he now speaks to those who are young in their faith babes in Christ because entering into the kingdom of heaven means what it means becoming the child of the living God by the gospel, you've been torn out of the kingdom of Satan, who was your spiritual father. You've been torn out of that relationship. You've been brought into the kingdom of Christ. You've been washed in the blood of Jesus. You've been filled with the Spirit of Christ, and you are now forgiven. There is a, a full atonement between you and God. There is peace, and he accepts you as his child. So we enter into the kingdom of God as the children of the Father. But they only know the Father because they've come to the Father through the Son. As the Bible is very clear on, Jesus Christ says so. John 14 and verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He is our only way to the Father. Because his preaching points us to the Father. His work on the cross makes it possible to approach the Father. So many other things that we could, we, could, we could mention. But if we do not have Christ, then we do not have Christ's Father. He goes on into that as we read further on in that chapter. You can't have one without the other. You can't say, I have Jesus and have no interest in the Father. You can't say, I have the Father, but I don't yet have Jesus. It's impossible. You can't say, I'm adopted into this family, but Jesus is now my elder brother, and I have no father. Of course I have a father. I have his father as my father. And so a true child of God who has come to Christ and through Christ will have a true relationship with the Father. Have you not noticed that? How often the the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry is pointing us to the Father. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, 
And therefore, to grow up in faith, those who are young in faith, those who are babes in Christ, must not think that they have all the answers to every spiritual challenge. They don't. They need a heavenly Father, but they also need, as we will see, fathers in the faith. And as we understand them, we will understand as we go through it, although I'm, I'm looking at the time and I think this might have to go on to next Lord's Day morning. But we'll have to understand this, that there is, there is a need for all three of those levels, the babes in Christ, the young men growing in Christ, and the, and the older men ripening in Christ to understand that they all need, and we will see this, they all need a teachable spirit. How can you cheat? teach a child anything that turns around and says, for example, oh yeah, I know that. Of course you didn't know that. But they say, oh, I know that. And they don't learn. I mean, how difficult it is to teach all children anyway. You told them to to tidy their room uh, day in and day out, and the room is still a pigsty. But of course, I'm not speaking about my own children. Oh yes, I am. But all children are like this. You can, you, you can, you can tell them the same thing again and again and again and they, they are slow to understand, they are slow to hear, they are slow to obey. But if they had humble, teachable spirits, mothers and fathers, what a blessing that would be. Humble and teachable spirits. I don't agree with you, mom, but I'll do it. Yeah. And then they find out, well, as every, children, listen to this, children, what you'll find out as you grow older, yeah, you go through adolescence, you've grown up, maybe you're 25 and you're 30, or you're 35 and you're 40, there's one thing that you will discover, that mom and dad are more often right than they are wrong. And you will then turn around, as I have done hundreds of times, and say, yeah, she was right. My mum was right. What a fool I was not to listen. If I had listened, this problem wouldn't have occurred. That situation wouldn't have occurred. My mum said, she said, here's an example. don't like talking about myself, but this is just a very valid example. She said, never talk about your boss to your colleagues. I thought, yeah. That's mum. Mum's just being overly fearful, overly cautious. Surely my colleagues are just like me and you're not going to use it against anybody. You know, we've, 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 got our, we've got our annoyances and our complaints and we can talk about these things. Oh, how right my mother was. As I left, as I was asked to leave that job. Many, many years ago. Many, many years ago. And then kicking myself, if only I had listened to my mother, if only I had had a teachable spirit, instead of being such an ignorant know-it-all. How can you have those two in the same, same place at the same time? That you don't know, and yet you're a know-it-all. Arrogance and ignorance in one heart and mind. And yet it exists. We must all put our hands up and say, yes, I recognize that to some degree. Some people have made an athletic Olympic sport out of it. But you can only know when you have been taught and not of yourself. But of the Spirit of God and through the Scriptures and through the church that God has set up.
that Christ has set up for the teaching and the feeding of his people. And therefore, to grow up in the faith, uh, those who are young in the faith must not think that they can have all the answers. They don't have all the answers. The Lord has not just said, I'm, I'm saving a soul, and then and there are some people who never come into a church. They've heard the gospel, and somehow they say that they're saved, and yet they stay out of a church. So if they are saved, I said, you're foolish children, or you're not saved at all. But you don't have the answers to every spiritual challenge. The Lord puts us into community, into a fellowship, into a congregation for many reasons. One, because we are to be united in our love for Jesus and each other. Secondly, because Christians irritate each other and are mean to each other. Christians are not Christian towards each other all the time, unfortunately. And it's in those trials of your faith that you come to realize that I've got to love that person even though they don't like me. Now, for some people, and unfortunately I know a few who've come and have given that reason, well, people were not that pleasant to them, and they've left. Within the last three years. Now, can they be overly sensitive to taking the slight that not enough people shook their hands and smiled at them? That's possible. Looking for offense, there are those that look for offense. Offense, not offense, not that wooden thing at the back there. Offense, to be offended by something. And so they will be. It's nothing you can do. Some people just want to be offended so they can sit there and feel like the victim and lick their own wounds, none of which is is Christian. But others are offended because sinners, redeemed sinners, are still sinners. And therefore it's, under, then it, therefore it's so important that we come into a community that even when it's not pleasant and people are unpleasant or mean or they just ignore you and do all these things that Christ says don't do, but the Lord will use these things for good. They mean it for evil, but the Lord uses it for good, that all things work together for our good, for our growth, for our sanctification, for becoming humble in, in the face of pride. And so that's why you must be part of a Bible preaching fellowship. The church is not a supermarket. You can go to No Frills one day, you can go to Canadian Superstore the other day, and you can go and you can pick a mix and you go here. The church is not a supermarket. It is a fellowship. It is also called a family, a household of faith. You know, you may visit other people, but you have a home. You have a home. So don't expect young believers that you have all the answers that you can live the Christian faith either on your own or outside of fathers in the faith or outside of pastors that have been uh, given to you by God that you can live this Christian walk without asking for counsel, for advice, for help. The Scriptures have the answers. And often as the Lord works in another Christian, they have the answer through the Scriptures. As I mentioned to a, a, a couple of people privately, I don't think I've mentioned it from the pulpit. But the second epistle to the Corinthians begins with this very idea. Paul says from verse 3, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth, who comforteth us in all our tribulation. That means our troubles. 
that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. So Christian, you've gone through a difficult patch. You've gone through a difficulty. You've gone through something which is very difficult. And maybe you thought you were all alone, but the Lord was carrying you all through it. And you've come through the other side and you've learned many spiritual lessons. You, you, you've learned this from the word of God. You've learned, you've learned that in that experience. And then this young Christian, this babe in Christ comes up to you and says, you know, brother, sister, I've got this and this problem and the Lord has just brought them to you. You know, 10 years ago, I had exactly the same difficulty. Exactly the same difficulty. Look, let me just show you the verse that the Lord used to really help me. You're comforting them with the comfort wherewith God comforted you. You will not get that outside of the church. That's something, that's part of the ministry of Christian to Christian. But if you don't go and ask and say, brother, would you pray for me? I've got this difficulty. I'm not too sure about it. You'll never get that help because you're not just a child in Christ, but you're being an ignorant child of Christ. Thinking, well, I can do it all myself. I'm sorry, but a child cannot make their own breakfast and then wash up after themselves and, and, then, and then get clean clothes and put them on and then drive themselves to school and, and then come home again and do all these other things. Some of these things they physically can't do. Some of these things they haven't got the drive to do. And some of these things they just wouldn't do. You know, after a week, you'd have some sort of like rat-infested house uh, if the children were left to their own devices. Of course, there are no rats in Alberta. Although I've heard there are some in Edmonton, but we won't go into that now. But so we understand that we are brought into these relationships within the church that we may learn from each other, understand from each other. That doesn't mean that what your brother or sister says to you in Christ is infallible, that their advice is to be followed to the letter, only when it's in the Scriptures. Someone will say, well, you could understand this verse in that way. Okay, well, thank you for your opinion. Yeah, that might be helpful. And then you study it yourself, you understand it yourself, you go to your pastor, you go to the elders, whatever. The scriptures have the answer, and that is why John is writing to all the Christians in this epistle. He's writing to those who are young in their faith as well, and we'll go into other matters as we come to them next week as we look at the remaining parts of these verses, verses 13 and 14. But we've seen, and this is a primary doctrine, the childlikeness of the Lord's people. A primary doctrine must enter in as a child and in many ways, as John says, you must remain a child, though you grow into young men and mature fathers. You must still have the attitude of a child in the faith. May the Lord bless his word to us this morning and bless us as we come back to it next week, God willing. Let us pray, please. Our Lord and God, we do thank thee for the truths of thy word. We thank Thee that Thou hast spoken to us. And for those of us who know the grace of God, we thank Thee that Thou didst bring us to an end of ourselves and bring us onto our knees to make us into little children before Thee, that we would humbly beg for salvation and, Lord, receive faith, or having received faith, do that very thing. We thank Thee that there is the full and, f full and free forgiveness of sins. Nothing that we could do ourselves 
yet we might receive it by faith. And that is not of ourselves, but it is the gift of God. So we thank thee, Lord, for having provided absolutely everything for our salvation, even bringing us, Lord, onto our knees before Christ, and that we may have the one true and living, eternal and infinite God as our own heavenly Father, he who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. We thank thee, having delivered us from Satan and his clutches, to bring us into the kingdom of Christ, that we may say with him, Our Father, which art in heaven. Lord, bless thy word to us. We pray for grace that we would, if we have grown out of being childlike Christians, not childish, but childlike, would thou help us, O Lord, to regain that grace, to be humble before thee. Bless thy word to us all. We pray for those who are still in the kingdom of darkness, even this morning, young or old. We pray for the grace of God to draw them out. They will get on their knees before Christ, calling upon the name of the Lord, and they shall be saved according to thy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.